Hello, everyone, and good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're watching from. I hope that you, your families, and loved ones are all safe and well in these difficult times. My name is Robert Scott. I'm a member of the Flight Operations Group of the Royal Aeronautical Society, and I'm pleased to be the chair of this webinar today. Before I get into the details of the webinar, I'd like to give you some housekeeping information. Today's webinar is being recorded in both audio and visual and will be available for all attendees to access two days after the event. We strongly invite your comments and questions today. You'll find a question tab in the GoToWebinar platform box on your screen. If you have a question during the presentation, please submit it via the question box on your screen, and we'll answer as many questions as we can at the end of the presentation. Please note, though, that we may not be able to answer all the questions, but we'll do our best. If your question is directed to a particular speaker, please indicate to whom the question is directed. All attendees have their microphones muted, so if you wish to communicate with us, please do so via the question tab. And finally, as many of you know, we were obliged to postpone our March conference due to the coronavirus this year. However, I'm pleased to tell you that it's been rescheduled for the 6th and 7th of April next year when we hope to see you there. Please keep an eye open for emails on the subject and on the Society webpage for further updates. Now to the webinar itself. The presentation will be approximately 40 minutes followed by 15 minutes of Q&A and we intend to finish promptly at 1900 UK time. Our speaker today is Air Commodore Di Whittingham. Since 2012, Di has been Chief Executive, UK Flight Safety Committee, and he is active in a wide range of industry bodies, including the Flight Safety Foundation's European Advisory Committee, AASA's Commercial Air Transport Collaborative Analysis Group, and he's also Vice Chair of the CHIRP Air Transport Advisory Board. Di's two panelists today are Captain Terry Buckland and Captain Peter Terry. Both Peter and Terry have extensive experience as pilots of large public transport aircraft with major airlines, specifically in pilot training and management. All three of our panelists are members of the Flight Operations Group of the Royal Aeronautical Society, and their full biographies can be viewed on the Society's website. Today, our panel will be reviewing the accident that occurred to a Boeing 777 aircraft in Dubai on the 3rd of August 2016 during an attempted go-round. On board were 282 passengers, two flight crew, and 16 cabin crew. As the aircraft slid along the runway, the number two right engine separated from the wing, and there was an intense fuel fire in that area, as well as fire to the number one left engine. After the aircraft came to a stop, the commander ordered the evacuation, but because of high winds and the external fire, there were several issues with the evacuation. The GCAA final report will be used to frame a discussion on some of the key findings, lessons, and recommendations that can be taken away from this accident. There is no intent to apportion blame, but merely to see what we can learn by studying this accident. And with that, 
I'll hand you over to Dai for his presentation. Dai? Thanks very much, Bob. Uh, well, hello, everybody. Thank you for turning up in such large numbers. As Bob has said, uh, we're looking at this uh, 777 accident at Dubai and the final report, which was released um, uh, last year, sorry, earlier this year. And just to remind you, uh, they are personal opinions. They're not Royal Aeronautical Society opinions. And uh, as was stated at the start, there is in no way any implied um, or direct criticism of organizations or people involved in this. That's not what we're about. And I'd also like you to think about the fact that we are viewing this with pretty good hindsight. Uh, this accident started, or at least the causal chain uh, was only about um, five seconds, five, seven seconds long. Uh, we've had much longer to think about it uh, than those poor guys did. So with that, <clears throat> we're gonna have a quick look at what went on. Uh, I'm gonna look briefly at the evacuation and then we'll talk about the human factors involved and the um, training that went around that and then some of the lessons to take away. Bearing in mind that out of this uh, final report came 40 separate safety recommendations, uh, which went to the operator, to the manufacturer, to the regulator, to ICAO, to the FAA and to the air traffic services in Dubai. So um, pretty much lessons all round. Okay, so um, manual approach to Dubai runway one two left with a tailwind, albeit in limits, but still a tailwind, and um, an outside air temperature of plus 49 and a concrete temperature of plus 68. So the pilot flying recognized the touchdown would be outside the touchdown zone and he commenced a normal go around by selecting toga. The thrust didn't increase during the go around and there was a gear up runway contact uh, and was as mentioned a post crash fire which was um, escaped by all 300 POV but sadly there was a fatality amongst the, uh, the fire crew and we'll look at that a bit later. So let's just uh, discuss the uh, events before arrival at the runway then. There was a, um, a moderate wind shear warning on the 80s, which was discussed by the crew. And this was an update to the, the briefing they'd given themselves for the approach um, about an hour before the, their arrival. Uh, and the wind shear warning did include the fact, or the discussion around it included the fact that there may be a need to do a, a wind shear toga. Uh, the times you can see in red on the left are uh, UTC, so it would have been uh, midday-ish in Dubai. So vectored for the RNAV on 12 left, um, VREF calculated uh, VREF 30 plus 5 at 152 knots, so 147 knot VREF. And uh, shortly before they arrived, two aircraft went around, uh, they were not advised of this, and uh, then just before they landed, uh, two company 777s landed ahead of them. So there's nothing to suggest to them at this stage that there's anything unusual, although uh, I think as everybody who's operated into Dubai will know, it is well known for the, um, the variable nature of its wind, shall we say. So um, 0836, they were stable, they're clear to land, and they got a surface wind of 340 at 11 knots. So within limits, uh, but still not ideal. Uh, they come down the approach, the autopilot's out, the flight directors are on, and the autothrottle was in speed mode. 
and at uh, coming through 750 feet, the FDR for the first time records uh, a genuine tailwind and the approach continues quite normally. So 450 knots, uh, sorry, beg your pardon, 450 radalt and 156 knots, minimums uh, automated call out and the captain announced he would be landing. Pilot monitoring called at 200 feet or thereabouts, 16 knots of tailwind, and then a little while after, reducing to 13, so now well within limits, and 157 knots IES. So the IES is creeping up a bit, and as you would expect, the auto throttle starts to retard. And they arrive at the threshold, 54 feet on the radout and 159 knots. So the, the speed has picked up just a little bit there. Uh, one of the functions I gather of the auto throttle, which responds to overspeeds more slowly than it does to underspeeds. Um, flare starts at about 40 feet, slightly high, but they're 100 meters into the runway. Uh, 25 feet RA, the passing 300 meters, um, 158 knots, so still roughly the same speed. And at that stage, as designed, the auto throttle goes into idle mode, enunciated on the FMA, and both of the thrust levers start to come back towards idle. Now, the times at this stage that you'll see there in red are from the flare. So uh, about eight seconds, two foot, and 165 knots. So the speed has increased, and the captain says thermals which was a reflection of the amount of updraft he was getting from the runway. 10 seconds in, the right main landing gear untilt switch is made. So there are 1,090 meters down the runway. Um, the untilt reflects the, the fact that the main landing gear trucks are tilted up by 13 degrees. And obviously, as they transition into the, the ground mode, uh, the switch is made. There is also weight on wheels system which works on the undercarriage main beam and uh, at 13 seconds after the flare the pilot flying decided that he was going to be long so he called the go around and at about the same time the automated system enunciated long landing an automated call out uh, set by the operator at 67 percent so pretty classic two-thirds of the runway distance remaining which was um, 3,600 feet landing distance available. So a good long runway ahead of them. 15 seconds in, he calls flap 20, which the PM acknowledges. They're now down to 153 knots. A few seconds later on, the pilot monitoring calls positive climb. They're now down to 147 knots, going through 47 feet on the way up. Pilot flying calls gear up. They're now down to 145 knots, but they're still quite low. And at this stage, air traffic weigh in with, uh, we, here is your call sign, um, continue straight, climb to 4,000 feet. So they've just cleared the runway when this call comes in. A few seconds later, pilot monitoring calls gear up. They're now down to 135 knots, 77 feet on the rad out. He then acknowledges the clearance, which is what you would do, and sets the missed approach altitude in the MCP, and they're by this stage down to 131 knots. So almost 10 knots below VREF. And at 25 seconds, they peak at 85 feet, and then the descent starts. Three seconds later, the pilot flying has recognized what's happening, calls wind shear toga and selects full thrust. 
uh, but it is sadly it is too late. So the runway impact just 30 seconds after the flare, 31 seconds after the flare at 124 knots. So still above stall speed, but um, and under control, but with the undercarriage retracting, and uh, the aircraft then sort of settled onto its belly. And as Bob said, the uh, the right engine separated as it slid for about 800 meters, about 30 seconds ride down the runway before it came to a halt. And now we get into the evacuation phase. So there is a fire going outside. Uh, and this is a quote from the report. So one minute after the aircraft came to stop, the evacuation was triggered. And uh, during that time, they'd spent um, a while trying to locate their emergency checklist, which had been flying around the inside of the cockpit. Uh, but in this period, there were a load of passengers who got out of their seats to try and get stuff out of the overhead bins. And they blocked the aisles and the passengers to the exits. So the cabin crew are now busy trying to control these people. And I, and I should say now, the cabin crew performed magnificently throughout this episode. They did a great job in very difficult circumstances. Uh, and as, as you could expect, it was the first time for them too. So there's a photograph uh, still taken from a video uh, inside that aircraft on that day. So not only were people getting their um, luggage out of the overheads, but they were also stopping to take video, even though the aircraft was very clearly on fire. And you can see there, I think, in the background, the, um, the haze as the smoke starts to enter the cabin. <clears throat> so a um, little bit more complex now. This evacuation is actually a case study in its own right. It is worth reading and um, to take the time to do that. So 90 seconds after the impact, the fire commander and the first two fire vehicles uh, arrive on scene. That's a pretty good response uh, in anybody's language. Uh, but it is 90 seconds in and at six minutes 40 from impact, all the occupants are clear except for the captain and the senior crew member who are still inside at uh, nine minutes 40 when the wing explodes. Um, what were they doing? <clears throat> well, they were looking for a young lady who had been separated from her family at some stage during the, uh, the evacuation process. Uh, and they were forced forwards by the smoke and flames and ended up jumping uh, onto, uh, from the door onto L1, which had detached uh, and was lying on the ground near the aircraft. The box below the writing there shows you which slides were in play at what stage. So uh, bearing in mind the evacuation is starting one minute after the aircraft has stopped moving. Uh, and you will see there the light green bars are showing that there were just four slides running for much of the time. Uh, and in fact, um, R1, as you can see there, was only active for a very short time before contact with a piece of um, airport signage actually uh, tore through the slide and deflated it. And um, also there on the R4 level, you'll see there's a gap in the middle where the um, fire service actually managed to fill that with firefighting media, uh, which stopped the evacuation from there. 85% of the people in this evacuation left through the back, air, back of the aircraft. As you can see there, just through a few of the slides, it was a very complicated procedure and it was actually, comparatively speaking, reasonably benign, although there was a fire. 
And there's the 90 seconds mark from the time of the evacuation. So that's the certification standard, the 25.803 certification standard for an evacuation. Um, and as you can see there, there was no way they made that. So um, a problem perhaps to think about with the way certification testing is done, but the point to take away is that all the passengers and crew got out of the aircraft. A couple of pictures here, you can see the detonation starting there on the um, the, the wing, the, the right-hand wing, uh, fuel fire led in the, the right wheel bay, um, which took a great chunk of upper wing skin panel off, and, and that sadly is what killed the uh, the member of the uh, the fire service. The other minor injuries on the RFS side were all heat injuries because of the uh, the concrete temperature. So um, four serious, uh, including a couple of um, fairly uh, thorough um, spinal injuries through the, just through the impact, but um, everybody survived. So the question uh, is about the evacuation. So one minute, a whole minute lost um, getting into this whole process. So the question is, should the evacuation checklist be a memory item? That's something for you to consider. And maybe we need more than one type of evacuation process. And if you go back now, think back now to the San Francisco 777, again, the flight crew uh, would have been very stunned by what had happened to them. The back of the aircraft's been ripped off. They pirouetted across San Francisco. And, and even then, the, uh, the captain was trying to hold ahead of any, rum, uh, any evacuation, even though that aircraft was also on fire. So people need to think about this. Uh, and the link at the bottom of the slide there is to the uh, Flight Ops Group Specialist paper on emergency evacuations. It is being updated and will be reissued soon, but it's a very good read. I commend it to you. So <clears throat> let's get into the human factors then. Um, and we will start with the obvious distraction um, and the uh, ATC call, almost as the aircraft lifted off changing the missed approach procedure. Now, yes, you can argue that the first officer tripped into the, um, or tripped away from aviate, navigate, communicate, but bear in mind that this will also have been a distraction for the pilot flying, who's now wondering where it is he now needs to do with his aircraft instead of um, letting the, uh, the automated process run its course. And uh, there were, uh, as I said at the start, some recommendations that went to ATC about this. But missed approach procedures, generally, wherever you go in the world, those of you that have flown them will know that more often than not, as soon as you start flying it, you're asked to do something different compared with uh, that which is programmed into your um, FMC or is in your flight plan. Something to think about for the future. And then there are the auto throttle modes, and particularly the inhibition logic for the uh, the TOGA system. And we'll look at that in a bit more, bit more detail now. So the auto throttle modes that they would have been dealing with at the time: um, speed mode, so as as it implies, uh, versus thrust, where it will uh, give you what you ask it of, and then thrust reference, which will give you uh, that which is calculated for you. So single toga push gives you the thrust mode and the second push of it will give you the, the reference mode. So thrust to give you up to 2000 feet per minute, thrust reference uh, will give you uh, most of it. 
And then for the toga to work, clearly you need the autothrottle armed. The aircraft needs to be in the air mode. We'll come to that in a second. Either the glide slope engaged or the flap lever not up. Well, they had 30 flap. Thrust limit mode isn't at takeoff. They were landing. And either toga switch is pushed, which it was. The air mode is also required for the flight directors, was another cue. As I mentioned, uh, as it came through 25 feet as designed, the FMA uh, announced idle and the, uh, the, as the thrust levers came back towards idle and the auto speed brake becomes active. Now that TOGA inhibition logic relies on the weight on wheels system or um, both of the main landing gear truck lights on to uh, truck systems untilting, those capsules coming on, or being below two feet rad out for greater than three seconds. So the weight on wheel system, contact with the runway in other words, or below two feet rad out. As it turns out, they were on the, or in contact with the runway for about six seconds with either one or both of those untilt switches having made. Um, but bear in mind the call of thermals and the concrete temperature, you've got air boiling off that runway, they've got a low rate of descent, it's a wide body, it's known to um, be comfortable sitting in ground effect, and it perhaps shouldn't come as a surprise that the crew didn't physically detect the touchdown. The, uh, the change in the audio, um, the ambient audio was apparently uh, available or audible on the, the cockpit voice recorder, but um, clearly the crew did not pick that up. <laughs> because they didn't detect the physical touchdown, they did not detect that the aircraft was in ground mode. <clears throat> and it's not just the physical touchdown, of course, it's also that um, TOGA inhibit being below two foot. And when you are in ground mode, the speed brake handle movement, um, it was armed. It is the only system indication the aircraft gives you that you are on the ground. An interesting concept. There were two partial deployments over that six second period, both of them for less than one second. But these guys were, as their training required them to be, eyes out looking down to the far end of the runway at the landing attitude. So they did not, either of them did not see that um, speed brake handle moving. The go-around, uh, we know, is a high workload area. So that automatically starts to stack the factors against you. It was the first long landing for both of these pilots. Um, neither of them had got into that regime before. And so there will have been an element of startle and surprise. And in fact, for both these guys, it was the first time they'd been involved in a go-around uh, close to the runway, close or on the runway. The distractions we have talked about, those were obvious. There was some expectation bias. The captain, when he pressed the toga button, clearly expected the thrust would increase. It didn't. And then the first officer's call, the pilot monitoring's call of positive climb merely confirmed his belief that they, they were climbing away quite comfortably from the runway. Uh, and then we look again at um, another little wrinkle, the HBWS 
where the mode seven can give you a wind shear alert for a performance increase due to increasing headwinds and severe updrafts. And you remember we were talking about the, the fact that their airspeed was actually increasing as they passed the flare. Now that was not enabled on this aircraft. And you might ask yourself the question about whether the operational consideration, particularly for an airport like Dubai, with all that it implies for um, <coughs> wind shear and the like, uh, was properly weighed against the cost because there would have been a cost implication in fitting this to the aircraft. Now, the uh, training program for the operator uh, was based on that that um, Boeing provided. This is a direct lift from the port. Um, Boeing provided FAA approved training program, which did not include the TOGA inhibit logic at any point. So you might want to just ponder that one. And the um, computer-based training that the crew had done did not cover the FMA changes that you might expect uh, if you go around after TOGA inhibition. So there is already a bit of a knowledge gap there. Once you've touched down in the 777, the only means you've got of increasing thrust is manual because the auto throttle is inhibited. So you would expect to get a master caution and an auto throttle disconnect on the ECAS, uh, but that isn't mentioned by Boeing or the operator in the EPCOM or the FC, FCTM. Interesting. And uh, similarly, the auto throttle would have been available when they climbed above two foot run out, which is also not mentioned in the EPCOM or the FCTM. So uh, you can perhaps begin to appreciate why maybe the knowledge of the automation was not quite what it might have been. There was also, uh, the report looked at the fact that the um, FCOM and FCTM lacked a bit of guidance on go arounds just prior to or after touchdown. And this wasn't picked up on the audit either. So the, the oversight system also um, <coughs> did not do them any favors in res this respect. Uh, neither publication uh, required monitoring or call out of the FMA changes on a go around. And the normal procedure for go around didn't require a call out of the thrust setting when the uh, pilot flying selects TOGA and there were silent PF and PM thrust verifications as part of that go around process. So you're already back into that model where um, you, you can appreciate perhaps why people didn't necessarily understand fully what was going on with the aircraft, which was behaving as it was programmed to do. There was some fleet evidence, FDM evidence, of uh, inaccurately flown go-arounds, and uh, the operator had looked at that, had recognized it, and had worked it into its evidence-based training. Um, an enlightened operator doing manual handling simulators as a phased program, uh, which covered all sorts of things, not just this go-around area. But the go-around after touchdown was specifically taught, and um, that was done with the uh, autopilot, the flight director, and the auto throttle off, which would be known to the pilot. And the deal then was you select TOGA, you note that there's no response from the system, and then you apply manually full thrust. Uh, and then the procedure follows with <clears throat> selecting flaps 20, both rotating at VREF, 
and pitching towards 15 degrees. And of course, um, noting no response, that's fine. Uh, but in this case, the pilot flying did not, knew his, his autopilot was off. Um, he would not have been aware at that stage that his auto throttle was not available to him because he thought he was still airborne. <clears throat> so now we we come to the, the lessons um, and um, the basics, I, I think, is you fly the aircraft and you back it up with the automatics. Interesting here that um, Airbus in the development of the A350 went away from the, the standard type rating and instead went for a system where you learn to fly the aircraft uh, in its raw form to start with and then you overlay uh, in manual form and then you start to overlay the different um, automatics and layers of protection. So you actually know how your aircraft is going to respond. Possibly um, a learning from other accidents um, predated uh, this particular one. So <clears throat> go around after the flare. Uh, the logical approach would seem to be hold the attitude, apply the power, uh, stay on the ground to V-ref. If you have touched down, stay on the ground to V-ref. And it is surprising how much airspeed some of these big aircraft will lose, particularly if the spoilers have deployed uh, just between uh, the, the flare and touchdown itself. Select the flaps and then hit toga uh, as required when you've got a positive rate of climb. So uh, that would have, uh, I think, kept these guys um, out of difficulties. And uh, the, the use of the toga, which of course reconfigures the flight director as well, uh, would have allowed them to um, follow the guidance thereafter. Air traffic, they really do need to stick, either stick to the published missed approach procedures and change it if it's not suitable, or if there really is a reason for changing it uh, on the go, then they wait uh, for a suitable moment. Give the crew time to get the aircraft climbing in um, some form of ship-shaped fashion. Uh, <clears throat> mixed standards within fleets. We talked earlier about the EGPWS system and the fact that uh, it is possible to have differing standards, differing uh, levels of enhancements built into some systems. It just means that people have to learn different things and you either waste the enhancement because people have to ignore it and work to the lowest common denominator or you confuse people. So from a fleet management perspective, I would suggest to you that it'd be a really good thing to make sure that all, all your aircraft were as close to the same standard as you can get them. HF uh, <clears throat> incidents from the simulators. They don't seem to be reported. We don't seem to pick up the human factors wrinkles from the simulators. And I uh, was talking earlier with people who are working on the 787 sim and others where it is um, very common for pilots who've had the, either the auto throttle failed on them or who've been given a problem uh, late on where the auto throttle hasn't responded as they expect to um, call a go round if it fails uh, or, or merely not to apply power on a go round and they come to grief. So, so why are we finding that out from simulators uh, and not, uh, rather, why are we not finding it out from simulators 
and instead we have to find it out from an accident. I suggest that that's not a good way to be working. Safety enhancements uh, should be standard. They, they shouldn't be sold as an option. And you can think here of the um, AOA gauge on the 737 MAX, classic example. Um, if you've got an enhancement, put it in. We talked about evacuation checklists. Should they be memory items? Should they be different? Uh, we know that uh, there is no such thing as injury-free evacuation. Uh, most of them are practiced with the wheels down. We never really look at the scenario where the, the gear is up, uh, and maybe we should. And maybe we should be looking at the emergency, emergency evacuation, where you know you've just come to a, a sudden stop. And um, <clears throat> last but not least um, is the need to give operators and crews the information that they need to understand their aircraft and its systems. You need to understand what the automatics are doing for you. You need to understand what the implications of failures um, mean for you. For example, sensors, um, AOA, probes and the like. You need to understand. Uh, and we saw that with, um, with the Lion Air and Ethiopia accident, uh, with MCAS. If you don't know a system's there or you don't know how it functions, you are extremely poorly placed to deal with it. So, so here we had an accident where uh, the crew were placed in a scenario, say this all happened over a period of about seven seconds. As soon as the gear came up, that aircraft was no longer recoverable, even if he'd gone to full power then. Um, and that was down to a combination of uh, a training system which was designed with the best of intent and a lack of information that had come through with some of the, the manuals um, as they've been developed through the aircraft certification process. So human factors through and through, uh, the aircraft performed as it was designed to do and there will be questions, no doubt, about design philosophy, but uh, the good news, 300 people walked away from this. The sad news, the management of the evacuation led to one fatality. So I'm gonna stop there and pass it back to Bob, um, who will manage the, uh, the question process. Um, and I believe uh, we may have a couple of comments, I think, from um, uh, Peter Terry and um, Terry Buckland. So over to you, Bob. <clears throat> Thank you, Di. Wow. Um, as we all know, when things go wrong in an aeroplane, they tend to go wrong very quickly and very badly. And this crew, unfortunately for them uh, and the others involved, uh, were caught out. It does raise some very interesting points, which uh, you've largely covered, and I'm grateful for that. I'd like to ask Terry and Peter to join us to now. Um, and I know before we get into the questions that uh, have been presented to us, uh, I know that the two of you had some conversation about the startle factor um, in advance mm. of this uh, presentation, this webinar today. And I just wonder, as it appears to have been a factor in this accident, if either of you or maybe both of you would like to comment on that. Right, yeah. Hello, I'm, I'm the Terry and there's a Peter Terry over on the other side. Um, yeah, the startle effect, what a lot of people um, view with training and checking is it's too predictable and you get an engine failure at V1 on every check and you have an engine out approach and a go around 
and everyone knows the format with slight variations. But it's when you get the startle effect, as these guys, poor guys, really did seem to have, that's when you can learn a lot about yourself and about your knowledge of the aircraft. And I think startle training has already been shown to be very effective. Great, thanks. Um, Peter, any, anything to add to that? Indeed. Uh, my focus goes a little bit with the inconsistencies between the uh, flight crew training manual, flight crew operating manual, and SOPs. Um, the particular focus I have is, for example, on takeoff. Uh, the pilot flying um, with this company has his hand on the thrust lever and uh, will set toga or press the button below 50 knots. And when the thrust is set, the pilot monitoring will monitor that and say thrust set or some similar comment. Obviously, because uh, the thrust being an appropriate or necessary for, for a safe takeoff. In the event of a go around, however, there is no requirement in the flight crew operating manual or the uh, flight crew training manual for the pilot flying to have his hand on the thrust levers. Uh, nor is it a requirement of the pilot monitoring to confirm verbally that thrust is set. Uh, in three former companies of mine, uh, we had a common call out on go around, and that was um, check thrust. In other words, that the pilot flying would prompt the pilot monitoring to check that he has initiated the thrust and if not, do something about it. Two of these companies who are still in existence had decided that because of commonality with different airplanes on their, in their company to go to standard Boeing. And in that process, they remove this go around thrust check call. Now it's interesting in um, Emirates uh, that it is not because it's not defined by Boeing for the hand to be on the thrust levers in the event of a go around. The training instructors were giving guidance to pilots. That's a good idea. However, the idea that the hand is on the thrust there, but should also uh, be a sort of prompt that if it doesn't move, then something's not quite right. And a call out, check thrust, might be appropriate. Uh, I do recall that this particular call out and a, a pre previous company, shortly after they had decided to go standard Boeing, they carefully reinstated the check thrust call after the flight of the, this particular accident in Dubai. Thanks, Peter. Um, Terry, you've already just you've already sort of touched a little bit on this, but I have another question here. Um, do you think that the old style OPC OPC have caused a lack of training and go around other than from MDA? And what has EB, EBT done to help to improve this, if anything? Well, um, it's been happening for a while that there's been improvements in the training perhaps not in the actual testing of pilots that's got to be pretty well laid down with standard um, uh, failures and procedures but uh, most companies have a second day in the simulator a training day where in the review of recent events which is the evidence in ebt a company uh, can then practice the various um, maneuvers that the crews and the real world down the line might have got wrong if it is a developing um, uh, trait amongst uh, mistakes and 
Okay, uh, Di correctly mentioned hindsight, and only last year at uh, the training in the 787 simulator that I've been doing, we were practicing go arounds from touchdown, and it was quite demanding. Great, thanks, Terry. Um, now, this is uh, this touches on passenger behavior during evacuation, so I'm throwing it open to all four of you, actually. And of, and of course, many of you will know that the, um, the Flight Operations Group has produced an excellent document which touches on this subject, and that is passengers stopping to take baggage with them. What can we as an industry do, and what is the regulator's role in helping us affect change? And I'll throw that open to the four of you. Shall I start? Yes, please. Yes. Um, I, I think it's a big problem, uh, and you you see it uh, across the industry. The uh, the passenger non-compliance with safety instructions generally. So it starts at the the um, moment of briefing. Uh, the book says you've got to give a brief, and um, you know, please would you listen to the brief? And uh, actually, I'm going to have my headphones in. I'm going to be on my laptop. I'm going to be reading a book. I'm going to be talking to um, the person in the row behind me. Uh, people just ignore it. And, um, you know, there, there just may be the moment at which a single snippet of information means the difference between somebody surviving something and somebody not. So I, I think we've got a piece of work uh, to do. Um, we have started some of that with EASA, um, <clears throat> not that that'll affect the Brits for very much longer, but uh, it's to deal with uh, the passenger awareness of safety issues, that we have to have um, passengers collaborate with us on the safety journey. Uh, and that means they need to understand. It's not good enough just to say, don't do it. They just need to understand why they shouldn't do it. Um, and eventually we're gonna have to end up protecting people from themselves. We're not gonna get away from bags in the cabin. We know that, that's a commercial reality, it's, it's here to stay. Um, but what we can do is maybe start to think about things like central locking or some other means of, of discouraging that sort of behavior. Because um, we, we know that people have been injured by bags during evacuations, never mind um, possibly lost their lives as a result. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to see what comes out of the Sheremetyevo superjet investigation in that respect, because almost from the start of the evacuation, when you, you can see the whole back end of the aircraft's on fire, there are people coming out with bags. And we know you cannot leave an aircraft stopping to take a bag without taking at least some time, bearing in mind you've only got 90 seconds, uh, according to the spec. Thanks, Di. Um, Terry, um, could we give a quick little plug for our document on the subject and tell people where we are with publication of the updated version? Yes, the evacuation of uh, commercial aircraft, we, as uh, Bob said earlier on, we produced um, in 2018. We had uh, three authors, I'm one of them, but the lead author was a former CAA cabin safety manager who has led the whole process. And in light of more recent events, we decided to produce uh, a version two of it, which will be on the streets, hopefully very, very soon. And it's published by the Society in uh, 
collaboration with the honourable company of air pilots as well. And uh, although you can never have everything up to date, we hopefully will uh, have a lot of lessons learned. Uh, why do people take their bags? It all depends what's in the bag, I suppose. But uh, it's a really good document and uh, most people who've read it uh, agree. Thanks, Terry. Uh, I'm just sorry, I haven't gone to sleep. I'm just looking at the questions that are coming in. Um, airlines. Knowledge is not a separate competency under the ICAO system. It is incorporated with application of procedures. Um, not quite sure what that means. But what it lends me, leads me to is a question for Peter. And you were very um you mentioned several times earlier on about this business about hands-on throttles during the approach and missed approach um do you think that had a part to play in 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 this accident and uh, if so what's your thoughts on adopting that procedure in the cockpit yes i think it does um i also think that if um uh, boeing uh, have set up a set of procedures what we commonly know is standard Boeing SOPs and a lot of companies have adopted those uh, on airplanes which don't have such a sophisticated auto throttle system as is on the 777 and the 787. It behoves any pilot who's flying one of these less sophisticated airplanes but with an auto throttle system which is a simplex system to always have their hands on the thrust levers on the basis that they can't rely on them uh, and therefore um, they become more familiar with action of the autothrottle and to be alert when same does not work as, as, as uh, appropriate. I think under these circumstances, perhaps um, there is a sort of over-reliance because the autothrottle is engaged. They're, in, they're actually trained to use the autothrottle at all times. A lot of operators uh, on less sophisticated Boeing airplanes say if you're manually flying, then the autothrottle should be disconnected. This is not the case on this airplane because it has a different uh, trim system, etc. However, um, if you're going to have a standard set of SOPs which can meet across from different uh, types of airplanes produced by the same company, they should be competent to accept the limitations of uh, the autothrottle system. So I would encourage uh, hands-on thrust levers at all times, and I do, in answer to your question, consider this had an influence over this accident. Right, thanks. Um, any other comments from Di or Terry on that one? I, I was looking at the knowledge. Sorry, Terry. Go ahead. No, Di. I said Di. Off we go. Yeah. Um, I, I was looking at the uh, the knowledge implications uh, of this. Um, you, you did mention that. Um, I, I think it's one of the, the sad things about the industry and the way it's developed, and, and I understand why that might be but there seems to be no incentive for uh, people to develop really deep levels of understanding of their aircraft. They, they develop enough knowledge to get through the simulators, and that's because the simulators are being used for testing rather than for training. So we, we have a process where uh, it's, uh, that the regulation requires people to be tested in the simulator. And the question is really whether that's still appropriate in this day and age, when you now have some very sophisticated um, FDM protocols that will allow you to look at how people are performing. Line checks always used to work before simulators. Um, that, that used to be good enough. 
Uh, so, so there's a question about how you teach people about the high technical merit um, elements uh, of all this, and um, and where whatever happened to common sense? So, uh, I mean, I, there was, there, I see there is a question about when's a suitable time to retract the gear on a go around. The answer is when's a suitable time to retract the gear on a takeoff. It's not as your, um, it's not as your, just as you're clearing the runway, unless you want a nasty scraping noise. So. You know, they, these SOPs are built up for a reason and they drift for a reason. Um, and the simulator is the, the area to practice the, the difficult thing, to practice, to train, rather than to be tested. Personal view. If I could just yeah, come in, conversion yeah, costs, commercial pressures are such that there's an enormous amount of training crammed into a finite amount of time, either in the classroom or the simulator. Because if the guys had really learned verbatim the flight crew training manual and the the uh, the FCOM, they would have seen hidden away. It actually says um, it says the toga switches are inhibited when on the ground. That's hidden in a whole chapter about the autopilot system. And you know it's not even put in bold print. It, it really is hidden away. And I I just think that. Uh, the time pressure is is something that's really bad. And on the other hand, though, some training organisations this year started sending out a lot more information before a conversion course, so the guys would have time to study the books in in greater detail. Um, thanks, Terry. Um, this this could be a webinar in it in its in its own right. I think this business about what's the appropriate amount of training and what isn't. Uh, if we have time, we'll go back to it briefly. Uh, another question, um, perhaps um, Peter this time, how much did CRM help in this whole scenario or did it fail? Well, um, I think in practicality it did fail uh, because although SOPs were followed, uh, uh, if one looked through the um, report uh, by the GCAA, they considered there was a good rapport between the two pilots. Um, there was a good command gradient um, and uh, um, there was good support until this last moment where the SOPs fell down. Now, when they fall down, according to CRM, one should pick up the other. Unfortunately, neither observed the deficiencies of either one or the other or the Automatic, automatic system. So ultimately it fell down. Right, so bearing in mind that we don't want to apportion blame um, today, um, how, what could we learn from a CRM point of view? Because it seems to me that there were two factors. One was the startle factor and the other one perhaps is lack of technical knowledge of what was happening with, with the, the order throttle. Is, uh, Anything specific CRM-wise, or is it tied up with technical knowledge? Terry, this time. Carry on. I, I, I think you said it's either or. I think it's both. Um, and it is all, a lot is being tied in here, like what Peter was saying earlier on about calling out the FMAs and being aware of what the aeroplane is doing and not letting the aeroplane fly you, but you fly it. And as Di said, back to basics, it's a combination of all these sort of things, really. Right, thanks very much. Um, I've got an answer to a question here, so I'll read the question first. 
I wonder why Boeing stopped putting the evacuation checklist on the control column. Apparently, the answer is it removed the evacuation checklist because it was out of date and we couldn't keep it current. So that's from one of our TAME experts who's, who's uh, watching in. Um, please, can you indicate how an operator could achieve a common fleet? Financial implications, evolution of aircraft built, manufacturer driven? Not quite sure what's intended with that one. Can anybody I, I think, think that, that refers to my, um, my comment about trying to maintain some form of commonality. And, and clearly you, you can't, with different standards of engine and so on, uh, cover all the bases. But with um, major systems, you, you really ought to try to standardize. And yes, there are financial implications, but um, do, do you want to lose an aircraft or damage an aircraft because crew X didn't know that a warning was available or ignored a warning because they didn't understand it? Uh, it, it is that sort of process. You know, there, there is a training element in there. There is a cost element in there. And we're talking an ideal world. But um, uh, if you can, you should avoid too much of a divergence in the various standards of aircraft because, uh, you know, given what we've been talking about with technical knowledge anyway, um, you, you just add to the problem. Right. Um... Okay, this is um, this sort of off the top of my head question for, for everybody, and that is um, we have an enviable uh, safety record in our industry. We're very proud of it. Um, and it showed a steep decline in the 60s and 70s and to a lesser extent in the 80s. Now it seems to have sort of plateaued, if you like. Um, can anybody, would anybody like to uh, suggest why that's happened and why we might improve it further? Or have we reached a stage where it's never going to get any better? Terry, first of all. I don't really know. It can always improve. Uh, but a lot of it really goes back to um, what Di was saying about not really understanding the more complex systems of the uh, aeroplane. I mean, Quite honestly, the Asiana accident at, um, on, on the west coast of America was three years before the, um, the Dubai one. And the causes, although the actual accident was different, the causes were very similar. The crew didn't understand the complexity of the 777's automatic flight control system. And that's a quote from the NTSB in 2013. Things move very quickly these days. So there was three years for people to have learnt about some of the foibles of the 777 and 787 now, um, uh, automatics, and nothing was disseminated, or if it was, uh, lessons weren't learned. So there are always ways that we can improve things. I just think, going back to what was mentioned earlier on, that some of the training, things are just glossed over a little bit because there's not enough time. Uh, thanks, Terry. And as your triple seven man, this this is another uh, uh, another Boeing question. Just a quickie: Is the Toga inhibition feature fitted in any other Boeing aircraft? Seven eight seven. Peter's flown. Peter's flown the seven six and seven five and seven three. I haven't for a long time, so Peter might know. Okay, Peter. Well, I'm more recent to the seven three, and the seven three has. Uh, a delay mechanism, uh, 
I don't remember now how many seconds, is it six seconds? And then it would disconnect, but then you get a, a flashing warning light saying the auto throttles disconnect, a red light flashing. Um, the 7.6 and 7.5 was a long time ago, and I think probably I'm as up to date as Terry is. Okay, yeah. we have a 747 pilot sitting uh, underneath the table who you can't see at the moment, and he says the 747 has got the same system as the 777. Oh, yes, okay, I got that one, thanks. Um, thank you. Um, moving on, I think this one's for you, Di. Thank you for the thorough presentation. What could the airports have done differently to improve the emergency response? The, um, the emergency response was quite difficult, and I think that the, uh, the, the main issue uh, turned out to be um, problems with controlling it and the fact that they never really switched into a defensive mode once they'd started to get rid of the, um, the passengers. So that uh, they managed to block the flow from one of the slides uh, just through the physical positioning of a vehicle. They managed to stop one of the slides with uh, filling it full of foam at one point. So there was a, there was a bit of lack of coordination perhaps. And then, then of course, the um, and uh, maybe a failure to uh, tackle the seat of the fire because they didn't use all the techniques that were available to them. So the, the firefighting approach never really changed from the moment they arrived at the, um, the scene of the accident. So um, could they have uh, could they've backed off and let the aircraft burn out? Well, probably yes, but when that wing blew, of course, they'd still got two people uh, searching, so there were issues there with numbers, with counts uh, of, of who was doing what. So it was a very difficult scenario, and um, uh, as, as is always the case, uh, and you know we we rely on the RFFS guys to to get in and do things uh, for us, uh, and they do so very bravely. Um, no communication on this instance between the the fire service and the crew. Uh, there could have been. Uh, certainly uh, when the, um, the fire crew arrived, which should have been, you, know, you are on fire, you need to get this done al pronto, but um, easy to be wise after the event. But I, right. I know there have been changes in training, there have been changes in response, and for example, the, the typical fire training at most airports involves uh, a mock-up of an aircraft that's on its wheels, and yet we frequently see evacuations uh, which are more difficult when the undercarriage has failed as it's designed to do um, <clears throat> or is up as was on this occasion. So. Thank you. Um, I've got time for one more question and then I'm going to go around the panel for your closing remarks. So um, first of all, thank you to everybody for attending today and for your questions. And I hope you're going to stay in touch with us because we are are planning more webinars in the future. So the final question uh, for Peter and Terry, uh, it re it's with regard to simulator checks. How often do you see the gear raised on takeoff too early? Quite the reverse. It's often left down in the simulator. People forget. Very. I've never seen it anyway. Have you, Peter? Uh, no, I haven't. I was going to say exactly the same as you. It's more likely to be left left down. I have seen often with an engine failure a, a rotation before they got to vr they hear a bang and think oh i'm gonna get airborne i've heard that seen that often but the gear being raised early no normally left down okay
thank you. Um, I'm going to make a quick closing remark and then I'm going to hand it over to you, gentlemen. Um, just a reminder to all that an email to the recording and a, and a survey will be sent out in two days' time. Please do let us have your feedback. Thanks to our speaker and panelists for their interesting analysis of the accident. And once again, please make a note that we were holding our next Aircraft Commander Conference on the 6th and 7th of April next year. And um, thanks again for joining us. So I'll hand it over, first of all, to Terry for your closing remarks, sir. Um, one of the jobs that I have to do, I'm chairman of the Flight Operations Group in the Royal Aeronautical Society. And we do lots of, apart from the evacuation paper, we have other papers that come out that you could find of interest. And we're always looking for new members to come and join the Flight Operations Group. And when we don't have this dreadful virus, we have regular meetings in London and we have people from all over the world. So I would uh, ask if you were thinking that this was good and I really enjoyed it, but uh, perhaps come and join us. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Uh, Peter? I would heartily endorse that. We have had over the years members and still do have members from overseas who come on a regular basis to our uh, meetings, which are, are roughly, what, five or six times a year. Um, and uh, we encourage that. Some do come from Canada, America, uh, et al., uh, Greece, and so on, who come on a regular basis. So do not, if you um, think that distance is a problem, uh, Put that at the back of your mind you have the opportunity to travel you're very welcome thank you both and finally uh, but not, certainly not least i uh, thank you bob um just just to remind people uh, this is a an operator that was doing its best that was using evidence that was investing in additional training uh, and still ended up backed into a corner where they lost an aircraft uh, through despite their best endeavors uh, and it's so often the case, you don't find a hole in your system until you have an accident and a thorough investigation. And the, the question, I think, for the industry is, is that maybe we, we ought to start looking more deeply, uh, maybe into the practice accident concept, but really start to drill into where, where these human failings uh, might be precipitated by factors beyond the control of the people on the spot. So they were doing their best. Thank you, Di. Wise words indeed. And once again, everybody, thank you very much for joining us today. And we look forward to uh, your company sometime in the future. Thank you.